Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. my friends who listen to Future Primitive. I'm on the phone with um, somebody it gives me great pleasure to, um, to share with you. And it's Nora Bateson. Nora Bateson is the writer, director, and producer of the award-winning documentary An Ecology of Mind, a portrait of her father, Gregory Bateson's way of thinking. Currently, Miss Bateson is traveling worldwide with the film, holding conversations and conducting seminars with international change makers, ecologists, anthropologists, psychologists, designers, IT people, and countless other groups. Utilizing the film to introduce some of her father's thinking tools, Nora is giving audiences a lens that affects the way we see the world and how we interact with it, in addition to hosting discussions at film festivals from Brazil to Budapest. And she has now published her book about the practical application of systems thinking and complexity theory in everyday life, entitled Small Arcs of Larger Circles, Framing Through Other Patterns. And really what I'd like to do today is concentrate on the book, which I have been reading and enjoying very, very much. So, Nora, if you'd like to add something about yourself before we we begin the conversation, please go ahead. Uh, I think you pretty much got it. Um, the only thing that I would like to add, besides saying it's such a joy to be online with you, is just that I started um, a research institute called the International Bateson Institute, the IBI, and it's based in Sweden. And um, it's comprised of a group of people from around the world, um, from different uh, either scholarly disciplines or professions that have a strong base in Batesonian thinking. And we are working on several different research projects looking at, at how we can begin to use a study of interrelationships and interdependency that is in all complex systems, especially living systems, and begin to understand what makes them alive. How do they learn? How do they get unstuck? 
Um, and that is sort of where the, the big thrust of my work is now, is with the IBI and this research. So I just wanted to add that to yes, what you said. Yes. And um, let me ask you, how do you do this research? What, uh, what, are your, um, what are your ways and methods for this research? Part of our research. And the thing is, 
is that if you want to study transcontextuality and you want to do it through multiple multiple descriptions, and you want to look at patterns that connect, and you want to think about differences that make difference, that takes a team of people. It takes many ways of seeing, and it takes a conversation between that those people in that team that can really hold the level of not only theoretical, but explorative um, ideas of interconnectedness and interdependency. So that's what we do. We are a team. Good. Well, I... I, I, I'm excited because I I feel that I'm thinking right now that transcontextuality is so crucial at this moment where uh, you're in Sweden, I'm in America, and in America there seems to be there seems to be frozen context confronting each other, frozen contexts um, confronting each other, and and I'm wondering how through through transcontextuality we might find fluidity. Yeah, well, that's it exactly. You just nailed it. My father, Gregory, used to talk about the double bind. And the double bind is a, a pattern of uh, what he considered to be uh, an evolutionary pattern, which is that You know, you can come to a place where multiple contexts don't work, okay? Mm -hmm. um, so this doesn't work and that doesn't work either, and you get stuck. Um, a, a lightweight example is the, you know, the girlfriend that says, you never tell me that you love me. Mm -hmm. And if you say at that point, but I do love you, then that's an insincere declaration of love. And if you don't say it, then you also haven't given a sincere declaration of love. Mm -hmm. And so there's this point at which multiple contextual processes can be in conflict and, and they can create traps. So, uh, you know, right now, if, if we don't speak out against the growing fascism in the world, right. then we will have been bystanders that let it happen. But if we do speak out against the fascism that's emerging in the world right now, what we'll do is create polarity and make it stronger. Hmm. Okay, so there's a kind of a double bind, because what do we do? Yes. At one level, the context leads us to destruction, and at the other level, the context leads us to destruction. So... With transcontextuality, there's the possibility of getting further and bringing in more contextual points of view and processes so that you might find a hole in one and sneak out. There might be a possibility for loosening up or getting to a higher level in the thinking uh, where there's another perspective, another whole version possible of description. Um, and I think that you are absolutely right that this is so important right now. Um, and it's 
first of all, really a good thing to be able to notice, just to be able to to recognize the transcontextuality in yourself, in the way that we might emotionally respond to an experience, right? Where you might feel afraid mm-hmm. and sad and you might feel guilty about something, but you might at the same time feel love and, and excitement and possibility. I mean, how often do you actually just feel one thing at a time? True. And yet, when we're asked to describe our experience, we very often give it either singular or binary description. And in doing so, we eliminate our ability to really communicate the transcontextuality and the multiplicity that we experience every day. So opening that multiplicity up is, I think, a way of being able to begin to see what can come out of it. Where are the openings? Where are the loose spots? It's really baby steps for a lot of us right now, not getting stuck in one context or another. I'll refer to a story you write in your book about your father when you were when you were 10 years old and you were in the back of his van and then the and you'll speak more about it the the, the hitchhiker came in the car and and he pulled a knife and uh, he asked for money while your father was driving and and then you have this phrase at the end of the story where you say my father saw more than the tip of the knife And I wonder if you could riff on that. Yeah, it's it's a great example that you are bringing in because uh, that is exactly uh, what we're talking about, really, is the way that we perceive the world and the way that we can respond to those perceptions that becomes our actions, right? <laughs> so so I was a little girl and I was in the back of the VW van and my father picked up a hitchhiker and he pulled a knife on, on my dad while he was driving. And my father looked down at the knife and over at the hitchhiker and he said, well, what have we here? How on earth did you get yourself into this mess? <laughs> And when he said that, he was really asking a question, okay? This wasn't a a methodology Mm -hmm. or a trick. It was not a technique. It was nothing rehearsed or practiced. He wasn't manipulating the man. He was actually curious about how he managed to get himself into this mess. And that communication of that curiosity was evident in the, the, the minutia of his, you know, whatever, the twinkle in his eye and the arch of his eyebrows and the shrug of his shoulders and mm-hmm. the pattern of his breathing and, you know, all the way through his being, that communication conveyed genuine curiosity and genuine perception of this human being 
as a human being who had more context going on than the aggression at the tip of the knife. Mm. And so, you know, honestly, my dad was in his 70s when this happened. And so I'm saying that because I think it takes decades of, of practice to get to that. I don't think it's a one, two, three, step-by-step technique. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, he spent all of his life looking at ways in which these contexts overlapped in in all kinds of systems, natural systems, and, and in organizations, and in children, and in the fish tank, and with human beings, and he loved them all. So this response that he gave, of course, you know, what happened was the man put down the knife and they started talking and and we drove another half an hour or more on this tiny little curvy road of Highway 1 through Big Sur, which if you've been on, you know, there's hardly anywhere to pull over. And, you know, little kid in the back seat and big cliffs on one side, mountains on the other. It was a pretty dangerous situation. And yet, you know, when people ask me if I had ever experienced my father in an emergency situation, I always said no. I never thought of that as an emergency situation because that spike of adrenaline, that spike of danger in the air never happened. It never occurred. Mm -hmm. It was just two people in the car having a conversation. And when we got to where we were going, my father gave the man his home phone number and some money and said, if you ever need any help, you'd be sure to call me. And he gave him a big hug. And, and, you know, we like to talk about emergence. We like to talk about resilience. We like to talk about complexity. But let me say this, emergence in emergency or complexity in an emergency or an acute situation, that is where, as they say, the metal hits the pavement because in those moments, it's so easy for our big, beautiful, loving, compassionate ideas to shrink down into immediate survival binaries. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what he didn't do. It it was never me versus him or us versus them, or there was there was never that moment of um, of polarity. Mm, Yes, and that's the thing about being able to operate with multiple contextual frames is that he saw, okay, he wasn't, I'm not saying that the recipe is to be nice to aggressors. There is no recipe is what I'm saying. Yes. There is no recipe. The only reason he said what he said was because that was the thing that needed to be said in exactly that moment between exactly those two people. That was what, was there. Wow. So you're not advocating compassion as as a recipe. You're you're saying 
he was being real, absolutely real. Absolutely real and yeah. responding to more than one contextual set of information in that moment. And be real and will not always save your life and your, your kid's life. No, but I don't think that being insincere will either. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, and, and I don't think that, I think that when we're dealing with these situations that are truly complex, that coming up with linear solutions and strategizing some kind of mechanistic way through is almost a surefire disaster. So, you know, the art of being able to perceive and interact with, with his whole self, right? It wasn't just his mind. It was his body and his heart and his personal history and his, his everythingness that he was responding with. You can't fake that stuff. Well, somewhat, that somewhat appears to me as living in a constant orgasm. I mean, <laughs> just at the apex of where everything comes together. Well, that's right. And, you know, you, you make it sound like it should actually be really a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that's a good a good description. It is fun. It is fun. It is, it is fun to be real. It is. I mean, I wish I could I could communicate that to everybody I meet. It's really fun to get out of the 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 constrictions of conditioning. Yeah, isn't that interesting? And I'm I'm hearing you say that, and I'm wondering, do you think, Joanna, that I am conditioned from growing up in that household in those kind of circumstances, that I'm conditioned in another way? My 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 fantasy is that well, reading that story about your son and education and uh, him going to school and being uh, and and people trying to diagnose him mm. and then you knowing that he his calling is to be an actor asking him to act in a, to act the person who fits in I mean, it takes me to that story, but at the same time, I want to answer your question, which is, uh, I think that you grew up in a context that allowed you to be free in your mind, mm -hmm. with your mind. So, I mean, to me, conditioning is, uh, is, is narrowing the mind to, to a particular context that fits the people who, um, who you grow up with, the place, and so on. It's, um, it's been a, a, an interesting kind of... Uh, uh, in my work, what I'm 
doing wherever I go, whether I'm working with economists or anthropologists or educators or artists or politicians or family therapists or refugees or whoever I'm working with, I'm always doing the same thing. But that thing is to help and do whatever I can to articulate and illustrate the ways in which um, interdependency and interrelationship uh, connect and form the processes of life that we live in. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's mm-hmm. what I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it mm-hmm. doesn't really fit on a business card, right. but that's what I do. Right. Right. <laughs> and and. You know, one of the things about that for me has always been that, you know, it's hard to describe that stuff because it's not really, uh, it's not really evidenced in our culture. The way we set up schools, the way we set up medicine, the way we set up any kind of, um, you know, uh, manufacturing from agriculture to politics. I mean, everything is is fragmented and siloed and separated and and when we talk about something we talk about the something when we research something we research the something we don't research the relationships that exist within but you know if i say who's mm-hmm. joanna mm-hmm. you know it really depends on from which direction and in which to relationships and how would you describe yourself without describing your even your relationships to your own body and nature mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so I always get myself in these predicaments of trying to describe this interdependency <laughs> which is really what is happening in my book it's just a lot of different vignettes yes um, that are sort of peekaboos into you know looking at the world of parenting through the lens of complexity and interdependency, looking at the world of love and partnership, looking at the world of fighting fascism, looking at yeah. the world of um, of food and nourishment, or, you know, there's lots of different angles. Um, but, you know, people always say this thing. They say, how is it practical? How is this very abstract thing that you're talking about? How is this practical? What am I supposed to do with this? I, I, I feel I want to. I want to answer this. I I don't know how to make money with it, but <laughs> <laughs> whoops. Um, one thing I wanted to say while you were speaking is is something I've never said at this in this place, but. I've taken about a hundred acid trips. I mean, not recently, and not in this country. Um, <laughs> uh, and so, in that, um, either that'll drive you crazy, or somewhat uh, for some people, for some destinies, in some context, it'll it'll really free your mind and what does it do to free your mind which is what I wanted to say when you, at the end of what you were saying is it, it teaches one to love it's taught me to love mm. and I feel from reading your book that it's been teaching you the same thing 
I mean, if the world is made of relationships, what are relationships made of? What? And I think that's, you know, for me, that's where ultimately the study of life is a love story. Hmm. And so I, I really tried to bring that in um, in my book because, you know, sometimes in, especially in science, there's this idea that science should be objective, that it should be distant, that it shouldn't be emotional, that there should be this kind of cold distance that, that, that is very rational. That's how you prove that you're rational, is by being non-emotional, right? But, you know, that's not true. And if you look at the whole history of science and all that science has produced, it has always been filled with not only love and curiosity and beauty and the aesthetics of, of, of a kind of intercourse with the world, right, but also violence and meanness and segregation, and objectification, and exploitation, mm -hmm. and vulgarity. Mm -hmm. And never is science actually just neutral, as much as it would like to be. And so in my work, I'm really trying to, to look at that and look at what, what, what that entails and how anyone who's taking part in any form of inquiry about life at any level is showing up with themselves. And you can't get out of that. The epistemology of the observer, the frame through which Joanna sees the world, Joannifies it. Mm -hmm. And the way that you articulate the things that you see is your way of Joanna-ing in the world, or my way of Nora-ing. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And if somebody else looks through the same microscope or looks at the same data sheet, no matter how repeatable we think it is, the observer matters. And so when we really start to look at the ways in which science is used, the purposing of it, that that is definitely stemming from um, who we are and what we're up to. So, you know, the study of eugenics or, um, or the study of um, patterns in seahorse parenting, okay? Mm. <laughs> I'm just pulling these things out of my hat. But these things really represent different kinds of lenses and, and relationships with the world. There's the man who studies the way that mushrooms and spores are forming intercommunication in mm -hmm. forests. Mm -hmm. And then there are people who are looking with 
scientific rigor for ridiculous things like where in the brain adolescent risk behavior is located. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, we have to ask the question, who are you? And that is a question ultimately that comes in, in direct, intimate contact with what is your relationship to the world. It's a very intimate question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I have really tried in my book to keep that intimacy tangible. Tangible, absolutely. There's this line that I absolutely, I, I absolutely adore it, and it's, future is an act of optimism of the highest order that asks that we take on a meta level of dignity, the dignity of dignity of all life in integration. Wow. <laughs> think we can do it? Yeah, I think I'll put, I'll put that above my bed or something. <laughs> <laughs> talk to us about dignity. Talk, talk to me about dignity, the dignity of dignity. to the hitchhiker uh-huh. and it, it's it's the question of perceiving other people or living systems you know it could be a forest could be an ocean that we're talking about could be the biosphere and and not isolating that life from the relationships that give it vitality. Mm-hmm. You know, if I, if I am really able to perceive you with the highest dignity, that means that I'm able to see you as being a very complex system of interrelationships that reach in all different directions, into the past, into the future, across continents, into all sorts of cultural mixtures and through education systems and, you know, your own ideas and relationships and the parts of you that are open or closed and the, the very, the very minutia of your of your your black bean soup for breakfast, mm-hmm. right? And to be able to see the complexity in that, in who you are and how you are, means that I don't sum you up or cut you out of your context or give you a label or singularize you or in any way reduce you, okay? This is about not jumping to reductionism and saying, Joanna is complex. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I do not know what 
Joanna is capable of. You know why? Because actually, Joanna doesn't know. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, how many times in a lifetime have we made decisions or done things that we didn't understand for, what, five, seven years? True. And then we started to understand, oh, that's why I did that. And yet, in the moment, all our friends want to ask us, or the psychologist, or the doctor, or the school teacher, or your parents say, why did you do a thing like that? And you try to give an answer. That's the hitch. You try That's to answer the hitch. it. Yeah. Okay, I get it. That's the hitch. That's the hitch. You try to answer it. And when you do that, you eliminate the complexity in there. You, there's the reductionism, that moment. And we have to be very careful about that because we do it all the time. So when we talk about dignity mm-hmm. and the dignity of dignity, it's that, that, that remembrance that to be humble and to be curious, you know, how did that young man find himself in that predicament? What are the stories that brought him there? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's curiosity and love and complexity and it's, it's dignity. It's not that person is evil and bad, okay? That would be the reductionist version. This person is violent. End of story. Okay, well, there is violence, but there is violence and there is a story and there is a human being and there is a moment and we are in it and, 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 mm-hmm. and. Mm-hmm. So the dignity has to do with choosing complexity over reductionism. Do you think fascism and um, reductionism are bedfellows? Absolutely. I think they're more than bedfellows. I think they are really one and the same. Uh-huh. Would you speak would you speak to us about that? Um well uh you know there are these beautiful intellectual uh fields of study in complexity theory and chaos theory and systems theory and cybernetics. And these fields are filled with formulas and models and graphs and theoretical um, all sorts of things, okay? There's lots of, of beautiful material in there. But I would like to go back to the beginning a long time ago, when my father Gregory and Margaret Mead and several of the other people who would later be part of something called the Macy's Group that called that were part of the Macy Conferences where cybernetics was born, mm-hmm. they started writing letters to each other in the early 1930s, late 1920s. These letters are in the Library of Congress. And you have to remember that at this time, none of these people were famous. None of them were important. Um, They were young, and they were risk-taking, and they were passionate, and they were, you know, they were in their early 20s. And um, 
they were writing letters to each other because they wanted to create a new form of science that would study how the world was whole, what was holding it together, that wouldn't separate all of the pieces. So that through science and the way of studying, there would start to be a habit in the world that would they saw that would be the antidote to fascism. They were fighting fascism the only way they knew how, which was to try to develop a new way of looking at the world that didn't divide it into parts. Mm-hmm. That didn't cut it up into bits. Because once you objectify, then you can exploit. So the objectification of any part of our world, they saw as leading to exploitation. And they risked everything. And it was many years. It wasn't until 25 years or more later that they began to have, they got funding and they started the, the, the conferences that were the Macy conferences where, um, uh, where cybernetics emerged. And cybernetics was the study of patterns of how, how systems work. And that led to systems theory and complexity theory and so on and so forth. But I think in this moment right now, mm-hmm. it's really important to remember how this whole story started. And remember that that is really what we are looking for again right now. Nothing could be more relevant. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. And every time we go looking for linear solutions, you know, the five steps to the four easy ways to the six applications, right? <laughs> All that material that starts like that is going to short-circuit the complexity. I mean, we would, we would need right away to draw a red flag whenever you see one of those titles. The four versions of the five steps to the six easy ways to the, yes. right? Yes. That's not how you do complexity. That's not how you meet a, a, a hitchhiker with a knife in the car. There are no four easy ways. But you can prepare yourself by spending a lifetime seeing, looking for examining, describing, writing poetry about, Mm -hmm. and finding the intimacy within the complexity that we live in. And it's everywhere. The opportunities start from the moment your eyes open in the morning to to be part of, to be a student of that complexity. It's, It's in your own reflection in the mirror, in the cereal that you pull out of the cupboard, in the black bean soup recipe that leads (laughs) 10,000 directions into the world, you know? Yes. Yes. And so there's no shortage of opportunity to prepare for that. It's, It's like preparing for a marathon, right? You can have the map and you can count out each amount of meters between each aspect of the marathon. Or 
you can just train in every possible way and be ready for whatever comes. And this is that second version. This is the train for everything and be, you know, almost like in martial arts. Be ready in the stance to move in any direction you need to move and to respond and to perceive what movements are appropriate and necessary in each moment. And will you screw up? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> really? Absolutely, you will. But, you know, you learn. Alive. 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 Yeah. I would love for our conversation to never end. <laughs> That's really what I want to <laughs> say. Which it won't. But I would love to go in bringing this around to you walking into the museum in Rome mm. and seeing the statue of Apollo and Daphne. And if you would speak a bit about the myth and because uh, I'm feeling, I'm feeling, I'm thinking about our connection with nature and um, I'm being alive with nature and and that kind of stuff. So this story that is in small arcs of larger circles of Daphne and Apollo is a is a is a really free license that I took <laughs> to to retell an old story. And um my connection to that story, that old um, Greek myth of Daphne and Apollo, was through the Galleria Borghese. Uh, there's a Bernini statue in Rome of, of the moment when Apollo is just touching Daphne's abdomen and she's turning into the laurel tree. Okay. Now, if you've never seen a Bernini statue in person, um, all, all I can say is find one someday in a lifetime. It's worth it. I had no idea what the story was. I had forgotten the whole myth. myth. I mean, it was a long time ago that I had studied it, and I just had some vague recollections. But I walked into this room, in this gallery and there was this statue and it is so excruciatingly beautiful and the longing in it is so so resonant in in the flesh in the imagination and in the possibilities for what what that even means to long to be almost together. So I started to think about the story that is that I remembered, and I filled in the gaps that I didn't remember with my own. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> my own working. Um, and I saw the story as being the story of really our relationship with nature. And, okay, so, so Apollo does the unthinkable, and he makes fun of Cupid, 
and he tells Cupid he's a sort of a, you know, lame little baby and he shouldn't be playing with bows and arrows. Well, that's a big mistake. <laughs> Don't ever mess with Cupid. Cupid. Big mistake. So Cupid, you know, he's a prankster, right? Mm-hmm. And he's going to get him back pretty good. And he, so he shoots Apollo with a golden arrow. And he shoots um, Daphne with a lead one. And at that, up until then, Apollo and Daphne had had this kind of flirtation going, and, and um, they, were, they were doing pretty well with their flirtation. I think mm-hmm. in the real myths, they were madly in love. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, and the gold arrow makes Apollo filled with desire, right? This is gold. We're talking about gold is just all about shiny things and desire and owning and, and, and wanting and desire, desire, greed, right? So he just, he just wants to possess Daphne because he's contaminated with this poison of this gold. Okay. Daphne got the lead arrow. She is like nothing. She's just depressed. She's She's in doubt. She's totally cynical. She believes in nothing. There's no light. There's only the heaviness. And she is convinced that nothing, that she would never conceivably love again, ever. So, of course, it's a disaster. It's a perfect disaster. So he wants nothing more than to be with her, and she cannot imagine that love could ever even be real. Ever, let alone coming from this idiot with this, you know, twinkling gold in his eyes. So she runs, and he runs after her, and they're running through the forest. And she's in the the, the dark tunnel of despair, and he is like, you know, riding on the light of the sun in desire. And then she calls out to her father, and she says, just get me out of this, just turn me into a tree. I will never, ever be part. I'll never be able to take part in creation. So just let me be creation. Just let me be of the forest. That will be the only way that I could ever find my way out of this. And her father grants her the wish, and just as she's turning into the tree, she's becoming the laurel tree. Apollo reaches around and he just touches her abdomen and in that moment the spell breaks of course because you know cupid he's the god of love right mm-hmm. he's not going to actually eliminate love so and, but it's too late and in that moment what we see is another kind of relationship between humankind and nature. And it's a relationship not of stewardship, not of sustainability, not of responsibility, not of all of those things that the ecology movement has been kind of boring about. But it's a relationship of lustful longing and passion and and real desire to be in contact, in this kind of contact that is always there and never complete. That is this, this 
kind in nature. Now that, I think, is the way that I would want to be treating this beautiful earth that we live in, is in that kind of love affair. Um, You know, I mean, think about it. How would you really want to be loved? Do you want someone to come and be in your life and steward you and take responsibility for you and make your life sustainable? I mean, that to me feels very scientific and very, mm, you know, Mm -hmm. rational. But that's not how life is. There's something fundamentally missing from that. And that fundamentally missingness is this this thing that Bernini depicted, which is just this incredible vitality of longing. Well, so that would mm-hmm. that's the Apollo and Daphne story, according to Nora. <laughs> Thank you, Miss Redson. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's not the one that you'll it's, find uh, in, in the history books, but it's the one you'll find in small arcs and larger circles. So. That's right. That's right. And it answers my question. Is there a myth that can release us from the grip of havingness? Ah. Yeah. Uh-huh, that, yeah. That, that does it for me. Oh, that's a really interesting observation. Yeah, because it isn't about having. No, it's about longing. Yeah. Yeah, it's about longing. Well, I think that we will (laughs) gently go our ways now. Okay, but before you go. Yes. Maybe I could read a little poem. I would like that. Excellent. Okay. There's lots of, of different styles of voices in this book because my feeling is it takes complexity to see complexity, to mm-hmm. perceive complexity. Mm-hmm. So it's going to take all the different parts of me and all the voices of those different aspects of me to describe complexity in many forms. And one of those forms is uh, the love story. Another form is this sort of poetry. There's also scholarly essays and that kind of thing. But this little tiny poem is called We Are Wine. And I'll read it to you. Yes. We Are Wine. Steeped in history, building a shadowy bouquet, unable to reassemble ourselves as grapes, we're wound into a richness we cannot undo. Beautiful still, and with a destiny that's vaguely related to vines, we still know water and wind. We know the stories of the keepers of the casks. We know versions of civilizations that sing. There is goodness. A look into a future of solutions is a potion table of bubbling mysteries, soaked in folded learnings, lost threads, unseen 
are grapes always delicious so i wanted to read you that one because right now it's hard to find hope in the world true and um i just felt that that would be a good sort of ending place for us on the level that you know we are nature we are the grapes and we are in the wine we can't pull our, the grapes out of the wine we are steeped in all these cultural formations that have tangled us in all these messes but somewhere inside there's still that deep connection and it it resonates so we leave it at that <sighs> Thank you so much for being with us today. It was Thank you. It was so fun to talk to you and be with you. Good. Good. Mm-hmm.